We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we're going to take a slight detour today from our Dominion and Dynasty book, and we're going to talk about Israel, history of Israel, and a little bit of what's going on over there right now. So, how are you today, Bob? I'm good. And you're you're just back moments ago from your PT. What do you think that stands for again? Uh, physical torture. Oh, oh yeah, I was here. I was thinking it was therapy. <laughs> okay, uh, it feels like torture. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so yeah, you're I'm in a, hurting all the time because I'm always pushing and pulling and trying to get the range of motion back. So it just never, I never let it rest. And I'm wondering if I need to. Okay. But I did go play golf Sunday. <clears throat> so, nice. But uh, what that, are your that what are your things to hurt? What are your temperatures down there now? Oh, um, it's been in the 80s still okay. and okay. I think 75 was the, when i woke up this morning so we did have a week of cooler temperatures which were nice and next week well tomorrow i'm driving to denver to right Kara, and yep. it would be 20 i think on sunday so she's at colorado christian university yeah, yeah. so anyway okay Alrighty. So, uh, yeah, we're going to, this is on everybody's mind because it's in the news and, uh, we need to be aware of this anyway, even if it's not in the news. So <clears throat> probably a good time to take one podcast, go in, go into the <clears throat> history of Israel. That's where you ought to start, but who knows might lead to other podcasts. I'm sure numerous questions will arise. So I'll, I'll run us through the history and uh, we'll actually start, you know, with their, their biblical, ancient biblical history, just to get a little warm up. You know, we're, we're swimmers, Hampton. We got to warm up. That's right. <laughs> so we'll do that. And then we'll get into, uh, you know, the history after Christ's first coming. And much, much of that really is more modern history, more the last hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I'll recount the history and then you, <coughs> you jump in where you see fit. You probably know a lot more about this stuff than I do. Uh, one thing I'd like to raise as we start, though, is <clears throat> how about 
this question. What is history, actually? I was at a, I was in the Philippines a few years ago. <clears throat> we were at this orphanage and there was a, it was like the anniversary of the orphanage while we were there. So we had a nice dinner. There were some people from the surrounding community and some, some families that had adopted children, like the, the parents and the child who was the first adoptee out of that orphanage. And the parents, the father was a, politician like I, I guess the equivalent of like a senator and I, <clears throat> I think it was he was from uh, Netherlands okay so the boy had uh, grown up of course he's there as a young man that orphanage has been there for a while now and he's a history like that's his profession I think he's going into to teaching he had just gotten his master's or something in history and I asked him what the definition of history was. And hey, I don't think they were expecting those kind of questions. You know, we were sort of at a gala, you know. And well, if you have um, a master's in history, you ought to be able to give a definition. He he was he was not bad. He's and he said, you know, that's a good question. And essentially history boils down to like recording of events on a timeline centered around uh people people and events in the course of time that that's kind of the raw bare bones definition mm -hmm. of history but then of course you, you can't you naturally uh, get into causes and that's when history becomes political like no nobody's gonna um debate well actually i guess some weirdos do but nobody's gonna debate that the Jews were massacred by Hitler in World War II. I guess there are actually people that deny that, but that's a losing proposition. But right. the cause of that could be a matter of debate. You know, you might have people, many more than you and I would think, defend that, right? So that that's where you get into politics. But history literally is, you know, a timeline of events and people. So let's do that with Israel. So people, when you watch the news or not even watch it, but consume it somehow, you'll have an understanding of what's going on over there a little better, I think. So here's Israel's history. The first place to get it is the Bible. Well, that's going to take you up to Jesus Christ. So don't forget the Bible in large parts is just history. So Abraham was born roughly 2165 BC. That doesn't sound very rough. <laughs> that that, I know. Well, <laughs> that does sound. The reason I say rough is, well, how did they get that date? Right. You know, they don't actually know. The, you know, within five years, I would say. So that's why I say rough, even though okay. I list that as a, that's a good question. And then uh, Isaac got to be given the story about a hundred years after that. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Okay. Then Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob's interesting in, uh, because he is where the name Israel actually begins. 
Well, before we before we move past Isaac, we should bring up the fact that Isaac had a half brother. Okay, tell us <laughs> tell us about that guy. <laughs> and that's where when that brings us, you know, the consequences of Ishmael. And hey, yeah, and and his descendants. And his descendants is the the root of the problem here with the, what's going on in Israel, right? Okay, very good. So. And how, let's dig just, you know, one inch deeper. Now, why, why is that even the case? Why, why did Abraham have Ishmael? Because he didn't trust God. Okay. And, and willing to wait. And listened to who? Sarah. Okay. <laughs> just so everybody knows. <laughs> right. Sort of how we got in trouble in the very first place. That's true. Um, so anyway, that that's right. That's a good clarification. So then we come down to Jacob, who gets named Israel in Genesis 32, 28. So <clears throat> that verse reads like this. Uh, no longer will your name be Jacob. This is God talking to Jacob. The man told him, but that's really God, you know, appearing as a human, <clears throat> but Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. So <clears throat> even, you know, it, inherent in the name Israel is conflict and struggle. And boy, is their history rife with that. Almost like no other group on earth. I, in fact, I would say that like no other group on earth. So maybe we'll get into some further history and discuss why that's the case, but there it is. So those are the progenitors, right? The forefathers of the mm -hmm. Israelite nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who becomes Israel. Then their birth in a sense is with Moses at the Exodus as they come out of Egypt as a nation. And when you think of Nate, that's about 1445 BC. Mm -hmm. And when you think about, you know, nations, they typically have a defining constitution. What would that be in the Bible? The, the book of the Bible that sort of defines Israel as a nation. Well, Ten Commandments would be part of that. That's right. And you'll find those in two books, Exodus, which narrates their birth, but you'll also find them in Deuteronomy. So that's what De the book of Deuteronomy kind of functions as their constitution as a nation, right? It's a suzerain vassal treaty. And it just turns out that God's the suzerain and Israel's the vassal. But um, that's about 1450 for the Exodus. So Deuteronomy probably written towards the towards 40 years later, towards the end of their wilderness wandering. So around 1400 is when Deuteronomy is written, give or take, you know, that document that constitutes their constitutes Israel's nation. So then you got 400 years of the judges What a bleak terrible history they're constantly at war in right. the judge and they never 
fully subdued their enemies. They got pretty close under Joshua, but they never fully carried that out. And so they were under the administration of, well, we've already named it judges until they get a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. What a horrible desire. But God granted that desire. So their first king was Saul. And that's about 1050. I know, I know that sounds precise, yeah. but it, it, that's pretty close. Right. So 1050 BC, Saul was king. He's got about a 40 year terrible reign, chasing David around for most of that time. And eventually David becomes king, not, not a descendant of Saul. So he's from Judah. Saul was from Benjamin as far as tribal descent. So David's about 1040 BC. He reigns about 40 years and Solomon takes over. So that brings you down to 970 BC. Solomon reigns for 40 years. First part of that, pretty good. <laughs> End of that, suffered, you know, fell. And so at Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel splits into north and south. And the north is retains the name Israel. And the south is essentially Judah. And they'll call themselves that. So 10 tribes in the north, Judah and Benjamin in the south. So two different kingdoms at that point, two different sets of kings. The northern kingdom Israel never had a single good king southern kingdom had a handful but not more than that down through the centuries <clears throat> in 722 BC the northern kingdom of Israel's conquered by Assyria the people are spread abroad a lot of them taken captive <clears throat> and that's where we actually get the origin of a people group known of known as the Samaritans, right? That's the northern kingdom of Israel that was interbred with the pagan nations around them. Okay. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, it lasts longer than the northern kingdom because, like I said, they had a handful of good kings, but Babylon conquers Judah. It really, there's three dates for that. Sorry for my cough, but the main main date is 586, but 605, for instance, is when Daniel was taken captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also came back in 597 and then 586. In 586, he just wipes the whole thing out, destroys the temple, wipes everybody out. <clears throat> and he's coming around periodically because basically he's collecting tribute. He's got an empire to run. Uh, Judah had been relatively safe from attack under Babylonian dominion. So, you know, it's protection fees. So he'd come around, hey, where, where's the money you promised to give me? And so on. But in the end, just really fed up with them. They keep rebelling. So he just wipes them out, 586. Then... The next dominant empire that takes over is uh, the Persians. So let's back up just for a second, give some 
some kind of perspective on the dominant Gentile kingdoms. So Egypt, you know, is the first, well, like, what would you call the U.S. today? Like, I mean, there's some ways in which we're an empire, but we're, I don't know, a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So Egypt was the first superpower. And then, and we're not going into the Far East. I don't know the Chinese history of the world. So Egypt, first superpower. Then who would you say, it's kind of, this is an interesting question. This is not in our notes, but who would you say was the dominant power on earth after Egypt? I don't know. I guess I would, would think, it was Babylon, but well, maybe Assyria, there was somebody in between. Assyria was before Babylon, but oh, you're right. Assyria. But just before, I mean, and a lot of crossover between those two. And that's kind of the reason I raised this question, because a lot of times superpowers—I guess we're just using that term as broadly as we can—come from within other superpowers. So who came from within? Egypt. And I would say Israel did. Under Solomon, under David and Solomon, they were the toughest nation on earth. Right? I didn't didn't thought about that. Well, think about it, right? David had subdued every enemy. And when Solomon's king, there's nobody coming against Israel. They're way too strong. But the difference between Israel, and this is important for a little but study. But Assyria is rising over a little farther east. Yes, but, you know, 200 years later or more, they're rising, well, yeah. no doubt. Well, in Egypt, was Cleopatra, didn't, is that, didn't she come to visit? Oh, that's a long, long, that, that's, <laughs> Cleopatra, that's with Caesar. You're, you're talking about. Who am I thinking about? <laughs> You're talking about uh, the Ethiopian queen. Ethiopian Can- queen. There we go. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it is sort of interesting when you mention those powers. They're there today. Egypt's still there. Mm-hmm. Syria, still there. Iraq, that's Babylon. Persia, that's Iran. You know, it's it's interesting. But I think it's incumbent. We'll pick up where we were in a second. But I think it's incumbent on Christians to know this stuff, to know their history. It's important. It it really affects how you view modern day stuff. So it's important to learn this. So, um, so you know, I was saying Israel came out of Egypt. <clears throat> the difference between Israel and the Gentile kingdoms is Israel never really expanded their borders. Right. I mean, they were, you know, Solomon was hugely influential in trade, but not military. He wasn't out conquering other countries, which he could have, and which every other nation did in the extreme. Israel never did that. It's kind of interesting. So... After back to the raw history, after Israel, then you get <clears throat> right now we're just running down the, the dominant world empire. So Egypt, Israel, then you get Assyria, 
and Assyria and Babylon come on the heels of each other. Like Babylon essentially comes from within Assyria, very close geographically, same sort of administrations, same cultures. Um, but they come, like Babylon comes from within the Assyrian dominion. As a, for instance, who ruled the world before the U.S. became the dominant nation? Didn't England? England, yeah. But and where did we come from? Within England. Right. Right, so that's not uncommon. Even Greece and Rome are kind of like that. So here we go again. Egypt, Israel, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Those are the dominant world superpowers in history up until right modern times. So we'll, right. we'll talk about that stuff some more in a different context, but just so people have that flow of history as, as far as these dominant superpowers. So <clears throat> after uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes Judah captive, then Babylon gets crushed. They were only, you know, their power after Nebuchadnezzar, they fall off pretty quick. I mean, that, that empire lasted, you know, less than a hundred years, really. Then Persia takes over. So for instance, a biblical book, well, Daniel, some of Daniel was happened during the Persian empire, but um, uh, Esther takes place during the Persian empire. Here's a little cultural reference. You know, I'm not a movie guy, Hampton, but <laughs> as, as a man of the street, I have seen a few movies here and there. One of my favorites is almost comic book-like in its presentation, but I thought 300 was a great movie. Did you ever see that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you like it? Uh-huh. Oh, man, I liked So that's the Greeks versus the Persians. Right, so the Persians took over Babylon, took over the world around 550, like in Daniel's lifetime, and they they lasted little <clears throat> little longer than Babylon as far as power. They began to wane, you know, maybe 150, 200 years into it, and then uh, the Greeks took over with Alexander. But during their waning hundred years or so. Persian Greece clashed, you know, a number of times. Here's some important things about those two superpowers. So <laughs> one is the great Persian king Cyrus. Very important. These guys, you know, Persia wasn't all that. <laughs> you tend to label, you know, these nations in your mind as like, bellicose you know like all oh, those guys were so warlike in persia was you had to be to be a superpower but persia was not that oppressive overall like the assyrians were horrible yeah i mean they just that's the book of jonah right they just torture you put you in cages torture you drag you around horrible babylon a little better but not much but the Persians, 
were not that oppressive, um, generally speaking, right? So Cyrus actually writes the decree that sends Judah back to Jerusalem. Hey, we don't need to keep you guys prisoner here in Babylon. Why don't you return? And that's a critical moment in history because God in the book of Isaiah calls Cyrus by name about 150 years before he was even born and says, he's my shepherd. He's going to release Israel from bondage. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And so, yeah. yep, so that's that's Persia. Then you get Greece. One of the significant touch points between Greece and biblical history is um, the Septuagint was done under Greek rule, right? Yeah. That's why that's why we have the, the New Testaments written in Greek because of Alexander the Great dominated the world, you know, from like, well, his life was so short. I mean, he died when he was 33. But you imagine conquering the world walking by the time you're 33? No. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a pretty good name, Alexander the Great. And also... It's the subject of, I have maybe five far side cartoons that are just in my mind off the charts funny. I think all of them are really good, but a couple of them, I'll just, you know, if I'm mowing the yard or driving down the road, I'll just start laughing, you know, by myself, just remembering these things. And so one of the far side cartoons has this soldier looking guy, you know, an ancient warrior, and he's coming home and it's to his hut and he's his head's kind of bowed down and his wife is standing outside the hut with her hands on her hips you know and a, looking like she's frustrated and she goes and another thing i'm tired of people calling you alexander the pretty good <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so anyway yeah that guy was good at what he was supposed to be good at if you were greek i guess you'd consider him good anyway he's his torch flamed out quick i mean 33 years old he gets sick and dies and uh so after him um yeah this is detailed in the book of daniel but four generals take over because he alexander never had an heir but eventually the romans took over and and the events that launched them on their zenith was really the Punic Wars, and that's uh, Rome versus Carthage. And so when they had finally defeated Hannibal, it was maybe down to 150 BC or so. So the Greeks kind of held power, not for that long, but their influence was huge. We still study classical stuff, right? We still read the Greeks all the time. Right. Um, well, and I think was it Stark that said that Rome didn't really do a lot. They kind of rode on the coattails of the Greeks with. Correct. You know, correct. So. Correct. So they, they, Rome takes over Rome, very military. I mean, brutal. 
and uh, they take over roughly 150, but they lasted a long time. A lot of these empires don't last that long, you know, like a lifetime or maybe an extended lifetime or two lifetimes. Rome was in power for a long time, you know, 500 plus, almost 600 years. Mm-hmm. And even even then, <clears throat> that's the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Empire lasted even longer. <clears throat> but with Rome's dominion, that brings us down to Jesus Christ. He was born under the heyday of the Roman when they were at their maximum power. So after Caesar, right, I don't know, 45 BC or so, Caesar, somewhere around there. So then his adopted son, Octavian, is really, he becomes Caesar Augustus. He takes over. And it, so they're just dominant at that time. And that's you, what you're talking about uh, when you mentioned Cleopatra. She was close with Caesar and with Mark Antony after Caesar's death. But anyway, she's Greek. She, Greece had conquered Egypt. And she's she's a Greek queen ruling Egypt. So anyway, you get down to Jesus. Now, <clears throat> here's some significant things, just a couple of them, about uh, Jesus's first appearance as far as taking on human flesh, the first coming. It... This is hard, Hampton. This raises some, we don't need to go into all of these today, but there's some tough stuff here because Israel rejects him. I don't think anyone would really argue that. I mean, it is true that the New Testament, except for one author, is entirely Jewish. Who's the non-Jew New Testament writer? Luke. Luke. But he's so Jewish, it's not even funny. Right? Like when you read his books, it's not like he doesn't know the Old Testament. <laughs> and he travels with Paul. However, Gentile by birth. But Christianity, <coughs> the New Testament, is Jewish. Yeah. So, so in that sense, they didn't reject him. You know, John didn't reject him. Peter didn't reject him, but the nation as a whole rejected him. So I wanted to read some biblical material about this. Um, Jesus, this is an important, real important chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. So we're going to read a little bit about that. So 1222. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him so that he could speak and see. All the crowds, maybe, all right, I hate to do this, but I'm going to interrupt the text for a second. (laughs) Okay. So look how, I just want to point out these Jewish um, idiosyncrasies their tendencies because it it makes us better readers when you pick up on their style and this all really revolves back to chiasm so in in chiasm like you have point a 
point B, point C, point B1, point A1, right? Imagine mm -hmm. it, right? Okay, so then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him so that he could speak and see. See how that's chiastic? Mm -hmm. Matthew lists it first as blindness and then muteness. And then secondly, he lists it as muteness and then blindness. They're, they're, it's just, I'm trying to impress on our listeners how, how deeply chiasm is rooted in the Jewish mindset. Right. So anyway, here we go with the text again. All the crowds were amazed and said, could this one be the son of David? Okay, let's, I'm just going to interrupt this text a bunch of times. What, why is that their conclusion? Son of David? This is the, the Messiah. Yeah, when he, he's, he's okay. miracles. Okay, who was the original son of David? Solomon, Solomon. right? Right. Right. And what is written in Jewish history about Solomon? Don't they, you know, his wisdom? Didn't they think the wisdom of Solomon included power over the demonic realm? They did think that. So that's why when they see an exorcism, they're saying, well, like you said, generally speaking, Messiah, but more specifically, son of David, like Solomon, is casting out demons. So anyway, that's just what's in the background of that text. <clears throat> and then, but when the Pharisees heard this, oh my gosh, here we go with the politics. Can't have that because this guy's an enemy of ours. We've already decided he's bogus because he breaks the Sabbath. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. So we can't have the people thinking that. So they have to spin the event. So here's what they say. It's a good spin. It's very tough to get around this spin. Uh, the Pharisees heard this. They said, he does not cast out demons except by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So the source of Jesus's power is demonic, they say. Now, how would you prove it wasn't <laughs> you can't really can you right it's a really good spin and i'm telling you this this is really important in our overall study because you're going to see this down through history the only way out of that spin is the spirit of god has to tell you what's true and when you reject that, then you're lost. And that's what we're going to see in this text. Because there is no argument you can actually give. Satan can do miracles. And he can do, quote, good miracles as false PR. He could heal somebody, right, for his purposes, Jesus is a really interesting passage, and it's the crux of the whole account. So in, in Israel's history, 
this is a gigantic moment. So here we go. <clears throat> now, when Jesus realized what they were thinking, he said to them, here's his explanation. Every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed and no town or house divided against itself will stand. So if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Pause there. Now, who's he talking about? Who's, who's casting out demons besides Jesus? Pharisees. Well, I would say it's the apostles. Weren't they doing that? Didn't he send them out to do that? Oh, okay. And so he's, you know, going, look, here's your, your son, here's Jewish people casting out the, who, do, who does John and Peter and James cast them out by? That's what he's saying, I think. So they will be your judges. Doesn't Jesus later say to the apostles, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah. So I think that's what he's referring okay. to here. <clears throat> so then, it, well, <coughs> one other clarification. What is Satan has a bunch of names, right? Like most important personages down through history. Why, why are they calling him Beelzebul? here why why pick that name i don't know so <clears throat> here's the origin of that name you recognize baal right that's that's ball right right the canaanite deity it, but literally that word means lord and zebul means house so the the lord of the house so the the despot the ruler stuff like that you could mm -hmm. say so he's actually the lord of israel's house at that moment in history and it's a perfect title for him there you're going to see that right in the text when he explains this stuff okay. so anyway <clears throat> Now, one other clarification on that. Sometimes you'll see it as Beelzebub, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the Jews. That's Lord of the Flies. Yes, that's the Jews making fun of the title Beelzebub. And where do flies hang out? On poop. Yeah. Right? So they're really, you know, yeah, you're not Lord of the House. You're Lord of Crap is what they're saying. When you see it that way, Zabul means house, Zabub means flies. Okay. So, <clears throat> and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. How else can someone enter a strong man's house? See, that's picking up on the reference Beelzebul, mm -hmm. the Lord of the house. And when house, 
is often metaphor for dominion, right? Like David's house means, you know, the Davidic line, okay. for instance, the offspring. So <clears throat> how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his property? That's the people, by the way, right. <laughs> unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can thoroughly plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. For this reason, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Mm. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. I mean, you're not going to read more sobering words in the Bible than that. Yeah. So the what he's acknowledging in a sense is your spin is good. People might not be able to tell just from watching me. But when the Holy Spirit affirms my comments and you reject that, then you're rejecting it with your eyes wide open. You're rejecting it because you don't like it, not because you don't understand it. That's what he's saying here. Right? Yeah. So, you know, the trees and their fruit, you know, by their deeds. But let's skip down to 43 because he's going to go back and touch again on what he had just said there. <clears throat> when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the home I left. When it returns, it finds the house empty, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. They go in and live there. So the last state of that person is worse than the first. It will be that way for this evil generation as well. I mean, this passage is Jesus explaining spiritually the significance of his entire earthly ministry. Right. And then, I'm, and I'm cleaning your house. And their, their rejection of it. Exactly. So I'm cleaning your house. Here's your opportunity to repent. If you don't, it's going to be way worse than when I came. And the reason I'm developing this for our time this morning is that's what you see in history. From here on out, Israel's history's the most brutal thing you've ever read. Yeah. So back to our history notes. Here's another passage. Matthew 23:38. Well, let's start in 37. Because he's about, he's about done. He's about to get crucified. So he says at the end of his public ministry, O Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, which you would have none of in. Look, your house is left to you desolate. See, that's Matthew 12. Mm -hmm. Your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me from now until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's look at John 18, 40. By the way, look at that last, right? Until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Kind of looks like there's a sliver of hope for them. Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Does to me. So John 18, 40. This is so uh, artistic. It's so poignant. It's just another critical point. It's the same point we've been making, but it's the way John makes it. So this is Jesus before Pilate, who's Roman. But Rome, at this time in history, rules Israel. So there's a Roman governor. His name's Pilate. And he, you know, the Jews can't do anything without Pilate's authority. So if they're going to kill Jesus, they got to okay that with Pilate first. Everybody knows this, right? So they bring Jesus before Pilate. And we'll start in verse 33 because it's so poignant. So Pilate went back into the governor's residence, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, are you saying this on your own initiative or have others told you about me? You know, that's a really interesting response. And I think it plays into how we... will stand before the Lord, you're not going to be able to give somebody else's answer. You're going to have to give your own answer to God. Mm -hmm. Right? When he asks you, who do you say I am? You're not going to be able to say, well, you know, some people think he, he doesn't care. He cares what you think and say. Right. That's really interesting to me that Jesus says that to him. So Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Like, of course, somebody else told me that. I don't care. Why would I care about the king of the Jews? (laughs) Anyway, uh, your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, my kingdom's not from this world. Don't you think, Hampton, that the hair on Pilate's neck was standing up. Maybe so. <laughs> I mean, you you have your you could kill this guy if you want, and he's answering you like this, like you're insignificant compared to who he is. That'd be freaky. Mm-hmm. 
And by the way, I heard this just the other day, um, you know, of all the major religions on earth, do any of them have a guy like Jesus that just claims to be God? Did Muhammad ever say he was God? No. Any Anybody? Any of the great religions? No. You got one guy whose claim is so bizarre, right? And yet if, often, don't you hear this? Oh, you know, religions are all teaching the same thing. No, they're not. Not even close, actually. Yeah. <laughs> There's one that's completely unique. Then that's redundant to say completely unique. But <clears throat> okay, back to the text. You got to not let me wander, Hampton. You're not doing your job. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So my kingdom's not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom's not from here. Then Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus replied, you say that I'm a king. For this reason, I was born. And for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked, what is truth? Oh, my gosh, Hampton, you can't get any. So here's a here's a way to ascertain someone's theology. Ask someone to give an answer to this question. For what purpose did Jesus ultimately appear the first time? Now, isn't everybody going to say, well, to, to die for our sin? Yeah. And that's, that's not wrong. That's not what he said. Right? That's that's what others have said about him. And he did say, I came to give my life a ransom for many in Mark. But look at this one. This is why I came into the world to testify to the truth. Man, that's Johannine to the core. <laughs> yeah. that, that is why, Ham, you've heard me say throughout our podcast, right? I, I know I might be a little different than some other theologians. I guess it's because I'm a man of the street. But I boil salvation down to believing God. And of course, as a subcategory of that, yeah, Jesus died for my sin. But the reason that's applied to me as a legal accounting is because I believe the truth. I believe God. They're not saved by being good or being bad. I'm not unsaved by being bad. You know what I mean? You're saved by believing the truth fundamentally. And as part of that overall category is the category, Jesus died for your sin. I mean, that's how I see it. Well, and but, yeah, you've said it before, I think. Uh, the reason to believe the gospel is because it's true. Because it's true. And, and think how systematic that is, though, in the end. How did we get 
in trouble by believing a lie. Yeah. How do you get out of trouble? By believing the truth. Hey, to me, that's the Bible. You know, it's all built on verses like this. But anyway, here's what we were getting to. When he had said this, he went back outside to the Jewish leaders and announced, I find no basis for an accusation against him. He's scared. Jesus scared him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's your custom that I release one prisoner for you at Passover. He wants them to do this. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He's a Gentile, by the way, not wanting to kill the Messiah. He will, but he doesn't want to. So do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Then they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. The significance of that is you could hardly overstate it. So <clears throat> let's break down the name. Bar means son. Like when you have a bar mitzvah, mm -hmm. the son of the commandment. And Abba means father. Right. So we want you to release the son of the father. And yet they're pointing at a thief. And you can't, it, there is no competitor to irony than that sentence. Yeah. There, there's no more ironic statement in the history of the world. No release for us, Barabbas. <laughs> well, that's what I was asking you, right? They said, oh, no. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. Okay. I mean, that, <clears throat> what I'm driving at ultimately is the causes of the history of the Jews. I mean, they rejected God in as strong a terms as you could. And yet, <clears throat> I think ultimately there's hope for them. Um, Luke 21, 24, and then we'll, we'll, then we'll get into the modern history. <clears throat> so Luke 21, 24 reads like this. Uh, we'll start in verse 20. <clears throat> He's describing the desolation of Jerusalem towards the end of his ministry. You know, they're on the hillside looking back over at Jerusalem and the temple and so on. He's talking to his disciples. They had asked him, you know, when when is the son of man coming? He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, <laughs> when have you not seen that? But anyway, <clears throat> then know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter it because these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days for there will be great distress on the earth 
and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's critical. Wouldn't you say from a biblical perspective that we live right now in the times of the Gentiles? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, I'd say ever since 605 BC, <laughs> the times of the Gentiles have been a pretty long time. But we're under Gentile dominion. We are Gent. Shoot, I'm a Gentile. Mm -hmm. um, but that's significant. You're going to be crushed by the Gentiles until their times are fulfilled. You could almost see that today, couldn't you? You certainly could have seen that World War II. And you certainly could have seen it in 70 AD. Right. Which is the primary reference to this. When Titus, Roman general, Vespasian's kid, wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, left not one stone upon another, and wrote that back to his dad. Literally, he wrote those words, quoting Jesus, not knowing that he's quoting him. Right. Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. Titus writes back to his, the emperor, I left not one stone upon another. So, okay, you've sidetracked me enough. Now, let's do the history of Israel <clears throat> since then. So they're subjugated under Rome, and a lot of that was not pretty. Rome killed thousands of Jews, thousands and thousands. They, they weren't, weren't on some rampage like Hitler was, but they killed thousands of Jews. Then, and, and they're scattered at that point. Hampton, like almost as, you know, like when um, Assyria and then Babylon conquered the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. I mean, they're displaced in history from that point on. Right. So the next dominion that they were really under, Rome's dominion lasted a long time. Then you got the Ottomans. Well, they're no fans of the Jews. No. Right? So they're getting slaughtered by the Ottomans. And then you get them slaughtered under Hitler in the to the nth degree. Maybe if we go over this in more detail on a later podcast, we'll we'll look at some of those details. But it's you almost can't read it. It's so brutal. Six million people killed for nothing. Right, horribly killed. Man, that's just crazy. And how does that even further Hitler's designs on a world? You know, how does that help them? How does that help Germany succeed in the war? When they're, they, they're spending massive efforts on that. Yeah. That's not easy to kill six million people. Right? It's not like you can drop a bomb on, on them. Right, they're all scattered. Every you have to round them up, get them to a place. After you kill them, you have to dispose. It's a massive effort. 
why on earth were they doing that? So, by the way, Hitler called Germany under his leadership the Third Reich. Doesn't that beg the question, right, to Who's us? Like, yeah, <laughs> what if you? So the First Reich, in his thinking, would have been Charlemagne, and really, he controlled almost all of Europe for a long time. His, his, you know, obviously he lived one lifetime, but the descendants of that ruled Europe for and close to a thousand years, 900 years or so. Then mm-hmm. Otto Bismarck, <clears throat> his reign was about 40 years. And then Hitler was, a th- that's how he would have been looking at that. Okay. So then you got World War One. That's important because at the end of World War One. Uh, England kind of comes out of that strong to some extent, and they they start extending their dominion to all parts of the globe, and so they take over, um, at least in name, the Holy Land. England does about 1918. They they didn't really have designs on developing it or plundering it but they were the the authority ruling it they took that away from the ottomans around 1918 so right at the end of world war 1 about 1917 this is critical for contemporary understanding of israel you had their the their equivalent britain's equivalent of our secretary of state was James Balfour in 1917. And you know a really powerful um, name in history, Rothschild. Right. But you probably know their history a little bit. That that name is misleading the way I pronounced it. I anglicized it, right? Which is what most people do today. But Rothschild's Jewish. And that name was originally pronounced Rothschild, which is German for Red Shield, which is where in Frankfurt, Germany, you could find that family in the slums. They had relegated the Jews to the slums of their city. And so you didn't have an address. You didn't say, like, I live at 125 Whitetail. So the way you would find Amschel's house, the diamond, like the the jewelry dealer, Mm -hmm. Amschel, was he had a red shield on his door. So it became, you know, Amschel Rothschild. He had five sons and he, Amschel did enough business, got a little nest egg going that he set his sons up in five countries in Europe, the one in England became the most powerful and uh, cornered the British stock market like like Soros did centuries later. But I mean, he made, in, in their day, there's no way to calculate how much money he made. So he became unbelievably wealthy and thus controlled history for a long time, that family did. 
I mean, their only rival in a sense like that, a, a family that became so dominant, you know, was Rockefellers. And right. they play they play into this too. It's interesting. But in 1917, the British Prime Minister writes a letter to Lionel Roth. Ro let's just say it the German way, Rothschild. And it's the, hey, we're going to facilitate a Jewish homeland. So that, that's a very important thing in history, the Balfour Declaration. At the end, on the heels of World War One, and that became the British mandate. So from 1922 to 1948, Britain ruled. Let's just call it the Holy Land. Ruled them uh, with what they would call the British mandate. So I'm going to read some of that. So this was called the British Palestine Mandate, the History and Overview. You can find this on the internet. This is from the Jewish Virtual Library, just a couple paragraphs. But it'll give you a sense of, <clears throat> of where we are today. These are the seeds of what you're seeing today. So in 1922, England, you know, what, the dominant acting power, on earth at that time. Not, not really as strong as the US, but the, the dominant acting power. <clears throat> the mandate system was instituted by the League of Nations in the early 20th century to administer non-self-governing territories. So pause there for a second. So the quote, the Holy Land was nothing at that time. He had some Arabs there you had some jews but nothing was official they weren't nations there was just nomadic more or less hmm. literally wasn't a country no neither neither the you know the the arabs nor the jews they weren't a country they just it was sort of a wasteland it was a bywater literally the Ottomans had never really done anything with it. And England didn't either. So they're non-self-governing. Now, there is over there, like at that time, Syria, Egypt, and so on. Well, how come they weren't doing anything there in the Holy Land? They didn't care about it. It really was the slums of that whole of the whole Mideast. They didn't care. What we call today, like the Palestinians, were castoffs. No one wanted them. They weren't their own people. They're Arab nomads. And then Jews were likewise. They didn't have a nation. <clears throat> so the mandatory power appointed by an international body was to consider the mandated territory a temporary trust and to see to the well-being and advancements of its population. So England's going to look, look after that area. <clears throat> That's what they're saying. And on July 24th, 1922, the League of Nations entrusted Great, Great Britain with the mandate for Palestine. 
So the League of Nations does that, designates England, okay, you guys look over the Holy Land. Recognizing the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine, Great Britain was called upon to facilitate the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine, Eretz, Israel. Eretz is the Hebrew word for land. Shortly afterward, in September 1922, the League of Nations and Great Britain decided that the provisions for setting up a Jewish national home would not apply to the area east of the Jordan River, which constituted three-fourths of the territory included in the mandate and which eventually became the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. So they're not giving Israel a very big chunk of that. No, no. Okay. <laughs> but it's the original chunk. It's the original chunk. The <laughs> British mandate authorities granted the Jewish and Arab communities the right to run their internal affairs. Thus, the Yishuv established the elected assembly and the national council. That's the, the Jewish nation. The economy expanded, a Hebrew education network was organized, and cultural life flourished. For who? For the Jews. The Arabs did nothing with their mandate. Okay, they didn't uh, develop their economy, and so the Jews did. They didn't. They have, they have the right not to. That's fine. You don't have to do anything with your freedom, but the Jews took advantage of it. Arabs didn't. The British mandate, oh, we read that. Okay. The mandatory government did not succeed in man maintaining the letter and spirit of the mandate. So Britain kind of backed off from this stuff, even though they were designated by the League of Nations to watch over this territory. Under Arab pressure, it withdrew from its commitment, especially with respect to immigration and land acquisition. So they wouldn't let a large amount of Jews return to their homeland. They really regulated immigration. Now, why is that? I don't know. That seems strange. Another thing that's hard to explain rationally. Very easy to explain spiritually, but hard to explain rationally. Like Hitler, you can't explain rationally. So uh, the, the white papers, so then that's the white papers are the British equivalent of, hey, we're going to modify our foreign policy. That's what those are. Restricted immigration and acquisition of land by Jews. Can't restrict anything on the Arabs. Immigration was limited by the 1930 and 1939 white papers, and land acquisition by Jews was severely restricted by the 1940 land transfer regulations. After the UN General Assembly adopted the resolution to partition Palestine in 1947, we'll talk about that, Britain announced the termination of its mandate over Palestine to take effect on May 15th, 1948. On May 14th, 1948, 
the state of Israel was proclaimed. So in 1947, Britain backs out completely. In 48, Israel becomes a nation. Britain never restricted the Arabs from anything and severely curtailed what the Jews were doing. So the Balfour Declaration and the British Mandate are important things to know in understanding Israel's modern history, you know, last hundred years. So with that in mind, then you get World War II, right? During the British Mandate. So World War II was like from 39 to 45. 1939 to 1945 and the Jews are massacred. I mean, by the millions. Yeah. And by the way, that German sentiment was not unique. Many of the European nations thought the same thing. It's just Germany was unrestrained. So <clears throat> then the United Nations votes to establish the state of Israel in 1948. Uh, I have a little note here. I don't want to go into this too far, but it is interesting. It backs up the point I just made. So the other family that just became fabulously wealthy in history was the Rockefellers. As a, for instance, in 1905, you can imagine what a dollar was worth compared to today. I mean, I don't know, like at least 10, 10 times more. I, I probably a lot more than that. Wouldn't you think? Oh yeah. I think uh, um, 20 times is actually the amount closer. Like yeah. a nickel. Okay. So know, in today is worth a, a dollar. Yeah. Okay. So imagine this. In 1905, John Rockefeller had more than $250 billion. In 1905. So wow. multiply that by 20. Yeah. So you have that when you have that much wealth, you can really influence the world any way you want. Yeah. So Rockefeller or uh, Rothschild, they'd made their fortune before this. So now you got these two families and there are deep connections between Rockefellers and Germany. <clears throat> so the vote at the U, we can go into this in more detail later, but the vote the, when the UN voted to make Israel a nation, I think the vote was like 33 to 13 or something. A lot of those votes came because the Jews were going to expose Rockefeller. They have all the documents on where he was spending his money in World War II and stuff like that. And they threatened to make it public. And so he, well, maybe we'll just vote that you guys can be a nation. See, it's very interesting. This I'm telling you, this anti-Semitism runs so deeply throughout the world for 
history, all of history. Well, yeah, and the riot, not riots, pro, uh, the demonstrations that are going on, you know, in our universities today and stuff. It's like they're where, insane. Yeah, they, where are these, this verse is coming from. Why do people it, hate the Jews so much? It's insane. Yeah. I mean, you can't. Sorry, give me one sec. You can't. Uh, you can't explain it. And it, it's people that back the, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah. To, it's like they have no understanding of what's happened over there. But let's finish out just the raw history because we're almost there. So then you get, since they, from the day they were established as a nation by the League of Nations, by the UN, that war started. They, they've been fighting ever since. And so you have famous battles. You have the war for independence, let alone, oh, you, it couldn't be that the UN just established us. Oh, no. Now you're going to have to fight for it, even though the nations established you. Now you're going to have to fight. And they did. They have like nothing, Hampton. They had no weapons to speak of. I mean, they had nothing. And yet they triumphed. The Six-Day War, very important. 1967, same thing. They get attacked by the surrounding nations trying to wipe them out. They're so victorious. They're halfway down into Egypt. They're way beyond their borders. They've conquered everything. So they pull back and they, it's, it's why there's certain territories over there, like the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Golan Heights. That's why they retain control over those areas to some extent, because that's where they're vulnerable to attack. And they only have those because they were attacked. They didn't aggressively go take right, those. Right. They were defending themselves. Sort of like a buffer area or something. Yes. And they told the Palestinians when they were attacked in 67, look, we don't consider you guys part of this. But if you join in on the attack, then we will consider you part of it. Well, guess what they did? They joined in. Of course. Of course. So then you have the Yom Kippur War in 73. These are all the same things. These are all like extensions of this struggle for existence. So the Palestinians, for instance, this is um, very hard to find today on the Internet because they've scrubbed it. But the original Palestinian charter to establish them as a, like a viable people group, you know, their own borders, blah, 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 called for the destruction of Israel. Their charter did in the strongest terms, pause, like we want Israel not to exist. That is why we are being established as a, as a group. Now you can't find that today because they've scrubbed that. Hmm. But you can find places where Arafat, for instance, will write to Begin in his, hey, uh, we're not going with that anymore. Yeah, that was in there. And, and he is going with that. He's just lying 
we're not going with that. You, you can trace the lies of the Palestinians for it, almost every statement they make is a lie. I, I know that sounds so opinionated, like I sound so dogmatic on that. I can, can hear myself, you know, it, well, go look at it. Go look at their statements and their actions down through his it, Almost every statement they make is a lie. Here's an instance from a week ago. Remember that hospital that was bombed? Mm-hmm. What'd they say? Israel, Israel, Israel did it. Israel did that. This is the first thing they said. Oh yeah. Well, here's this video of you guys talking about doing it. <laughs> it's proved now they did it. They, it's at every turn they lie. Right now, now where are they coming from? What, what? How do you live a life like that, where almost everything you do is subterfuge? Aren't they coming from the Quran? Yeah. Yeah. What's it say in the Quran? Doesn't it say to wipe out opponents of Islam? You can lie, steal, cheat, kill. It Mm -hmm. says that in what they consider their Bible. It says to do that. That's how insane the situation is. And by the way, maybe we'll close with this and you can... Uh, talk to me afterwards about if you if you want to follow up on any of this. Israel as a nation today is often portrayed as like in the terms of conservative and hawk-like, you know, like like they want war and they're they're a conservative. They're not at all. I mean, they're a functioning democracy, and let me tell you the way they vote. What we would call in this country is far, far left. It's a very liberal country. They strongly support gay rights, for instance. Very liberal. Like when when Netanyahu wins an election, it's not like he got 50% of the vote. They have so many factions over there. It's literally more like he got maybe four or five percent of the vote and that was a that was enough to win yeah they're so fractured over there very very what we would call in in our politics of our country extremely liberal and they're not warlike they're they're defense like but they're not out conquering other people they're right. defending themselves. Here's a for instance. So when the, when these uh, things erupt into what we call war, like they were attacked or so on, do you know that like take go back a month from previous to where we are today, like go back to September, and that from that point, go back five years. I'm just taking an example. It's actually longer than that. But for that period of time, do you know how often Israel uh, rockets were shot at Israel? No. A day. Not one day went by where they weren't attacked. You don't hear, hear that over here. No. It's just when it erupts into these bigger conflicts. That's daily. That's why they have that what's called that Iron Dome. They knock down those missiles 
every day. Oh my, I didn't realize that. I know it's staggering. When you actually look at this situation, it's staggering. So that's why I just want people to know Israel's history. So when you come across news, whether you're watching it or hearing it spoken about or on the radio, what, what have you, you need to know your history. And it really prepares you. I think we're at the end times. You've heard me say that. You're my guardrails. <laughs> and, and I could be really wrong because people like me, just like me, have thought that for thousands of years. So, you know, if I'd have been alive in World War II, I'd have said, this is it. Right. Yeah, I heard somebody uh, last week said something. Um, things are not falling apart. They're falling into place. It's a good way to say it. And, and what is, you know, maybe we'll wrap up with this, Hampton, if, unless you have some something you'd like to say. But uh, what is the actual event that in, in my dispensational understanding of the scriptures triggers the seven-year tribulation? A peace treaty? When a covenant of peace is signed between the Antichrist and Israel. Yeah. And at that point, Jesus is standing in heaven, in heaven now, at this right hand of God the Father. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, you see God having a scroll. Who's worthy to open this? No one. And then the Lamb steps forward. He's the only one worthy. And that scroll is the deed to the universe. And when he breaks that first seal, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's on earth. What you see is the signing of a covenant. But in heaven, what you saw was the breaking of the first seal. And I, I think we're there. There seems like it. Anything you want to add to Hampton? No. I think that was helpful. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we will talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.